This is a Federal News Network podcast. The governmental response to the COVID pandemic pulled in many agencies at the federal, state, and local levels. But how well do they work together? The intergovernmental response is the topic of the latest study from a working group of the National Academy of Public Administration. Its main finding? There's some work to do. We get more now from Working Group Co-Chair and University of San Francisco Professor Richard Callahan. Professor Callahan, good to have you on. Tom, it's great to be here, and thank you for your interest in the intergovernmental dimensions of the uh, COVID-19 response and the consequences. And when you look at just the purely federal response, as we have been, that has been complicated enough with agencies, A, not necessarily agreeing with agency, B. When you get into the vertical aspect of government, it sounds like you've really got a Rubik's Cube here, a three-dimensional issue of interoperability. Well, Tom, I think you describe it well. At the horizontal level, working across varied federal agencies, the CDC, NIH, working across the executive branch and congressional branch, uh, that's challenging enough. But for the field of public health, the state and county and city responses are so important in this that you really do have a strong vertical dimension, and it varies across regions of the country. And what did you fundamentally find I think there's some overall findings and some very specific findings. The working group, which was self-formed, there was not a specific congressional request, though NAPA is formed as an advisory to offer advice to Congress as a congressionally chartered nonpartisan nonprofit. The key overall findings of the working group, and there were 14 members of NAPA and three outside experts who joined us from all over the country, And my co-chair, Dr. Ken Kaiser, had strong federal experience as former Undersecretary of Health for the Veterans Administration. So we looked at this, and the number one finding was that, yes, the intergovernmental dimensions, the intergovernmental system is central to the response. It is not just a federal response. It's not just a local response. Uh, Two, that there were varied responses across levels of government. To ask the question, I do a lot of international work, they'd say, how is the COVID response going in the United States? I would say, do you mean at the federal level or by which state? Because it varied. The key set of dimensions that the working group focused on were four. And we spent a considerable amount of time on problem identification. And Mm -hmm. as I said, the working group itself had four or five former state health directors from West Coast, East Coast, all states current health directors, federal experience, academic experiences, deans, and four dimensions were identified. One is testing, how to ramp up and get started. What are the lessons learned there and the advice that can be offered? Two were non-pharmaceutical interventions as a whole dimension, and particularly we would know that as social distancing and masking. Three, the vaccine distribution And then four, there were a set of overarching issues on data collection, supply chain, and finance. And so there were, as you used the phrase, this Rubik's Cube, uh, this matrix of responses. Not only did you have the vertical dimension, but you had it across at least these four major areas. And then the fourth overall finding was that there were a set of actionable recommendations that we could have for helping improve performance for protecting lives and protecting all lives, making sure that no one's left behind, that there was really an emphasis on uh, health equity. So they would be the four key overarching findings. I guess it seems in looking at this report, one of the overarching questions might be is, 
who does properly respond when a health issue like this bursts out very suddenly and people are looking at television and the White House press conferences when, in fact, the administration of this is always through the local entities and some even nonprofits, even some drugstore chains, you know, got into this. So is it ultimately a governance question or just a structural ability to get along and everyone play together question? Well, Tom, your question is the question. How do we respond? And there's so many elements in that. The we piece is huge. And what do we mean by the we? It is both the local working with the state and the federal, the various federal agencies working together, working across sectors. The nonprofits I know in California where I'm based, the nonprofit responses, I think of Sierra Health Foundation and others, particularly for outreach, for vaccine distribution to all communities, is really essential. So I think one of the key pieces to recognize at the beginning is it is not just a whole of government effort, it's a whole of society effort to respond to an epidemic and prevent it from becoming a pandemic. We're speaking with Richard Callahan. He's a professor at the University of San Francisco and co-chair of the Napa Working Group on the Intergovernmental Dimension of the COVID Pandemic Response. Your main recommendations then are what? What can we do better the next time? And should there be some kind of a playbook for pandemic response? Maybe we've had them in the past and they somehow get shelved and forgotten about. The idea of a playbook is essential in emergency response. The saying over the years that I've heard always in emergency response is, if you're at the incident command system and you're exchanging business cards there for the first time, it's too late. So the preparation piece is very significant. The playbook piece, the journalist Michael Lewis covers it quite well in his book, The Premonition, about there were people and there were efforts at the federal level to develop a playbook in advance. The fast-changing nature of this really calls for the type of response and the multidimensional response that this working group found calls for, in answering your question, a recognition from the starting point that there's not a response, that there is a set of responses across a set of agencies, and that intrinsic to it is the intergovernmental dimensions. What I've come to understand at Napa is really the intergovernmental system is how we problem solve in our society outside of national defense and even to a certain extent within that. So the recognition that all partners at the very start and the full mobilization, like the recommendation for testing to use national lab systems and really look at this as what can be done to develop the partnerships that are needed and the partnership piece being the operative word. And you know, one of the striking features in working with this working group is how much talent there is in public health, in response, and whether it's in state health systems, in federal agencies, or in the academic and research communities, there's a lot of talent. And really, it's a mobilization of all that talent across a lot of different dimensions. And looking in hindsight at this whole process for a couple of years, it seems like the communications were often garbled among the many entities, again, across the federal government and then vertically. And I don't like to use the word messaging because that has a phony, let's uh, tell them what we think they ought to hear type of quality to it. But I mean real communication honestly with what's going on to the point where the average person of the public didn't really know what was going on. Well, the... Communication piece is significant in any governmental response. The challenge that we face, and it's a challenge that Napa is particularly strong at addressing, which is 
really how do you address what Napa calls the grand challenges of government? And another way of looking at the recommendations of this group are they're not only actionable, but they're recommendations to get at the key to any piece of communication, which is how do you build credibility? How do you build trust in a system? And particularly where there's a fast moving challenge in a pandemic. And so looking at each of the recommendations, whether it's really helping establish an early warning system, all of them help get at how do you effectively communicate that we're working together to protect lives. We're working together to protect all lives across all dimensions of American society. And that's a complicated piece of work. And here's what we know at this time. And here's what we can do. And I think the other question that you raised very thoughtfully is this question of how do we take the lessons learned? And there's a number of different types of reports. This report at Napa focuses on the intergovernmental dimensions. But really, one of the key features that research and what we know from our experience is how do we learn from this specific case and incorporate it into recommendations for the future? So Napa is part of that effort, and there's more that can be done there. And just looking at the summaries of the recommendations, you seem to lay the top responsibility at the federal level. I'm looking at just going down through them. Health and Human Services should, HHS should, OSHA should, CDC should, and so and so and so on. All the shoulds are for the federal level for something that schmears all over the entire country like COVID. Well, there is that level of it, and I agree with you. And if you look at recommendation 1.5 and 1.7, it's very clearly the recommendations are in collaboration with state and local public health departments, in collaboration with. And so while there's an identification of health and human services or CDC, there's also a very important recognition that these efforts are really, again, the recommendation from the vaccination campaign, local jurisdictions should lead efforts to reach communities at greatest risk. So I think what you find here is that emphasis on partnership, that working with the people who are closest to the challenge in local public health agencies and state public health agencies, and also facilitating what federal agencies can do very well. And finally, considering the ringer that everybody has been through for these past couple, three years, we now have not so much a response question as a knowledge management issue before us. I would add to that, and it's one of the great findings and research on the private sector, and Jim Collins is good to great on candor in learning from past experience. Like, can you confront the candidly have discussion? And there's other research on organizational performance, but it is, can you talk through these lessons and can you apply them moving forward? The Napa fellow, uh, Don Kettle, has a brilliant article on Hurricane Katrina and the lessons learned from that. And so there's a lot of discussions. You see the Pulitzer Prize winning work of Ed Wong at the Atlantic. There's a lot of information developed inside government, inside nonpartisan think tanks, nonpartisan research like you have at Napa and other places. How do we bring those together? You know, what's worked? What were pieces that worked? There was a brilliant member uh, who talked about what worked on the emergency response ESF-8. What worked and what can be improved? And that's one of the concluding remarks is really how do we prepare for the next epidemic? Well, definitely worth a read. Richard Callahan is professor at the University of San Francisco and co-chair of the Napa Working Group on the Intergovernmental Dimensions of the COVID Pandemic Response. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Tom, I'd like to thank you. I'd like to thank Terry Gurton, the president and CEO of NAPA, the director of the Center for Intergovernmental Partnerships, Nancy Augustine, my co-chair, Ken Kaiser, and each of the working group members. And thank you for your very thoughtful questions. Great people all. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was. I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And And I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that 
you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, uh, current times. I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.